Now today, we find ourselves returning back to the book of Romans, wrapping up this unit from chapter 9 through 11. Now we're not going to wrap it up completely today, but we are going into the last chapter of this unit. And so chapter 11 begins much like chapters 9 and 10 began. All three of these chapters begins with Paul identifying himself with the people of Israel. So in chapter 9, he starts by expressing his sorrow and the anguish that he feels over their rejection of Jesus. Chapter 10 begins with his prayerful longing for their salvation. And here in chapter 11, Paul writes about his conviction that God has not rejected his people. He does so by beginning to address a believing remnant of of Jewish individuals. And so that remnant is addressed in verses 1 through 10. And that's the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. Then beginning next week, we'll see how uh, there was a temporary rejection of the Jews. We'll see that from verses 11 through 24. And then he closes about the future salvation of Israel. And so we have a lot to uncover and walk through over these next several weeks. And so as I begin this morning, I'd like to start with a a brief word of prayer, if I might. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for everyone that is here. God, for bringing us together today to celebrate you and to worship you and to magnify your glory, Father. We thank you for that. Father, I thank you for uh, a nice, refreshing a couple weeks away and the joy of returning back home and back to the pulpit. And Father, I, I just thank you for the great blessings that you have poured into our lives and for this church. Be with us today, and Father, speak through me that the people might hear and respond to your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, Paul transitions to chapter 11 in much of a a similar way that he's done in in chapters 10. Uh, Chapter 10, specifically in verse uh, 18 and 19, uh, look there quickly, you'll notice that he uses this uh, this technique of, uh, he has a clause, he begins with the clause, and the clause in verse 18 and 19 is, but I say. And then following the clause, he asks a rhetorical question. So chapter 11 begins the same way. First, the clause. The clause is, I say then, and that's followed with the question. And so the question is, God has not rejected his people, has he? So in the Greek, this question it would elicit a negative response to which Paul graciously provides for us. And it says, may it never be. And so then Paul presents himself as proof or the evidence that God has not rejected his people. Because he says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul had responded by faith to Jesus Christ. And he has received God's provided righteousness. And yet, as he's saying, he's an Israelite. 
Not only is he an Israelite, he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. It's as though Paul is saying, look, if God could save Paul, then he certainly could save other Jews as well. So significant was the conversion of Paul that his salvation is presented at three different occasions in the book of Acts. You can read about his conversion in Acts chapter 9, chapter 22, and in chapter 26. So so Paul has already referred to this remnant in Romans. In fact, you're already open to Romans 11, so just glance back to chapter 9. Romans 9, verse number 27. Oh man, I love hearing pages turn in the Bible. You don't get that sound. I guess you can if you have your sound on your tablet. You can create that sound. That's such a beautiful sound. Anyway, Romans 9, verse number 27. says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. And so, I didn't do that. Did you do that? Yeah, cool, cool. I didn't know if you're, we're having a conversation here. Just mind. This quotation comes from Romans, from Romans 9, comes from Isaiah chapter 10, verse number 22. And that's what was on the, the screen. I'll control it from here. I'm good. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. I want you to understand that at no time has the entire nation of Israel been true and faithful to the Lord. God makes a distinction between Abraham's natural children and his spiritual children. Go back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse number 23. It says, You who boast... And the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of no value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Then verse number 28. He provides all clarity. And he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. The fact that the Jewish people shared in the covenant by being circumcised did not guarantee their personal individual salvation like abraham they had to believe 
God in order to receive His righteousness. Paul writes about that too. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. From the very beginning, Scripture has clearly declared that not all of Israel was saved. But there has always been a remnant within Israel who have remained faithful and true to God. This is clearly seen in Elijah's experience. His day was a a terrible day of sin and apostasy. Here we have Elijah, the prophet of God, who is being marked for death because he refused to stop preaching righteousness. In a moment of extreme pressure, in a moment of great uncertainty, he cries out to God in prayer, wondering if he was the only person left in all of Israel who truly believed. Paul declares, and that's why he uses this. Look at verse number 2. Romans eleven two. For God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed Your prophets. They have torn down Your altars. And I alone am left. Are they, and they are seeking My life. But what is his divine response to him? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Verse number 2 begins with a declaration that, that God has not rejected His people. His people whom He foreknew. And so God's foreknowledge of His people implies a special relationship with those people. God chose Israel to be the people through whom all nations of the world would come to know Him. A very special privilege that was given to the people of Israel. God made this promise to Abraham. The promise is contained in Genesis chapter 12. There it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God chose Israel to be His 
people strictly on the basis of his divine and sovereign will. It was not because they deserved it. It was not because they earned it. They were not chosen because they were exceptionally righteous. No, Deuteronomy chapter 9 says, Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Not only that, they weren't chosen because of their, their size or their strength. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And so God had, had given to them this privilege strictly because He desired to. Not because they deserved it or, or because they earned it. God knew before He chose Israel that Israel would be unfaithful to God. And yet, He still chose them. That's good news for us. If God's faithfulness to Israel was going to be dependent upon their faithfulness to Him, then God never would have chose them in the first place. If that, okay, if that doesn't get you, how about this? God remains faithful even when we don't. That's great news for each and every one of us. Look back at verse number 2. Paul continues with, Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. See, Elijah had been so discouraged in his ministry because the people were rejecting his message. He was complaining to God because God's chosen people had killed God's chosen messengers. Not only that, they tore down the, the altars to God and replaced those altars to God with altars to Baal. So Elijah believed that he was the only one left serving God and being faithful to God. But God had reserved for Himself 7,000 individuals who had never bowed the knee to Baal. It's as if God was saying, I have preserved a, a vast number of people, whether you realize it or not, that are true, authentic believers who are faithful to me. So important to remember that this remnant is saved by grace. And not by works. Verses 5 and 6. says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, there's no longer in the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. 
And this is completely consistent with what Paul has already established in this letter. Going back to Romans 9, Paul has already expressed this truth. Romans 9 verse 30 says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. It is absolutely impossible to mix grace and works. For the one cancels out the other. Israel's main concern had always been on trying to please God through their own efforts or through their own works. The nation of Israel refused to submit to the righteousness of the Son of God. And that's the same problem that we see today. Not only for the vast majority of Jews, but also for the religious or, or, or the self-righteous who refuse to submit and surrender their lives unto Jesus. So, so the question, if there was a remnant who had been saved by the choice and the election of God through His grace, none of their works, if there's this remnant that has been saved, then what happened to the rest of the nation? Well, the answer is, they were hardened. Just as Pharaoh's heart was hardened because he resisted the truth, so too Israel's heart was hardened as they rejected and resisted the truth. Look at verse number 7. What then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So only the chosen obtained it, and the others were, were hardened. But, but what does that mean to be hardened? Well, thankfully, Paul's not silent about that. Paul answers that. And so what it means to be hardened is seen in the supporting quotations that we see in verses 8 through 10. So let's just read through those real quick. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Let's look at these quotations real quick. The first one in verse number 8 is taken from two places actually. From Deuteronomy chapter 29 as well as Isaiah chapter 29. In, in Deuteronomy 29, Moses has summoned all of Israel. And he said to them, You have seen all that the Lord has done before your eyes. And then in verse number 3 he says, The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. And then he says, Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear, 
He's saying, yet to this day, the Lord has not given you the ability to understand the truth, the ability to see the truth, even the ability to hear the truth. In Isaiah chapter 29, it says, For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. So, so this hardening involves a, a spiritual stupor or a spiritual numbness. Uh, this hardening also includes a spiritual blindness and a spiritual deafness. Um, that's, that's verse number 8. And then, then he goes, there's another quotation. The next quotation comes from Psalm chapter 69. David wrote that psalm. And so the words from David in Psalm chapter 69 were originally a curse directed to Israel's enemies. Here, Paul takes David's curse directed towards Israel's enemy and he turns it around and he points it to the Jews. So verse 9 and 10 are from Psalm 69 verses 22 and 23. There it says, May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. So what Paul is saying is that the very things that should have been a source of nourishment, a source of blessing to the people of Israel, actually became the occasion for their rejection of God and God's judgment over them. Look back at verse number 9. Look at that phrase, that their table became a snare. That means is that their blessing turned into a burden or judgment. So, so this is what happens to Israel. Their spiritual blessings should have led them directly to Christ. But instead... It became a snare that kept them from Jesus. Their religious practices and observations became a substitute for the real experience of salvation. And so because they refused to receive God's truth, it says that their backs will be bent under the weight of guilt and punishment forever. Before I, I, I wrap it up today, highlight just a, a final thought or an observation from the text this morning. What Paul has to say about hardening in verse number 7 should be sobering to both Jew and Gentile. It should be sobering to every single one of us because the principle is universal. The reality is, if anyone hears the truth, and does not properly respond to it, the time can come when he or she is no longer capable of responding to the truth. This is a warning for all of us. May we never hear the Word of God without also seeking to properly apply that Word to our hearts and to our lives. Going back to verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears 
to hear not, down to this very day. That last phrase, down to this very day. The spiritual dullness, blindness, deafness of the people of Israel, well, that it continued from Isaiah's day down to Paul's day. Are you ready? It continues even today. When we begin to say things like that, it begins to make us uncomfortable, I think. I don't think we like hearing things like that. I realize it might be difficult and hard to hear. Because some people, when they think of Israel, they think that the nation of Israel can do absolutely no wrong. But you need to understand that today, national Israel is a national apostasy. So, so national Israel rejects the Messiah. National Israel refuses to submit to the Savior. National Israel denies the righteousness of Jesus. <laughs> but ooh, there are more Jewish believers than any one of us could possibly conceive. There's a remnant that still remains. And so God, Paul's made it clear that this hardening of Israel ultimately is for the benefit of Gentiles. But this hardening of Israel is, is not final and is not permanent. As we're going to see later in this chapter, there will come a day when, when there is a significant number of Jews who will respond positively to the Gospel and they will be saved. Oh, what a beautiful day that will be. Often, especially in, in, in heightened political seasons and in, in, in times of a great distress within the nation, uh, people will all ask the question, Oh, Pastor, do you think that we're in the final days? You think this is it? You think these are the last days? Let's kind of let, walk through this real fast. If I were to say, in answer to that question, if my answer is yes, absolutely, Clearly, what would change in your life? One would think that you'd be more eager to evangelize. That you'd be more anxious to serve one another. That you'd have a great burden and desire to proclaim the glory of God. I wonder if you asked me the question, Pastor, are these the final days? Is this it? What if I were to say, no? What do you think the benefit of, of that is? What do you think the mindset would be? I think it feeds into this, this being laxed and lazy about sharing the gospel. Being laxed and lazy about proclaiming the word of God. Being laxed and lazy in serving one another. The fact is, Jesus Christ resides at the right hand of the Father. And the moment that He ascended into heaven until the day when He comes back to establish the new world and the new heaven, we are in the last days. So my answer to the question is, yes, not yet. Now let me be very clear. This isn't thus saith the Lord. This is thus saith your pastor. This is my personal opinion. I need you to understand that. 
Don't get frustrated. I have a right to have an opinion based upon my study of the Word of God. You have a right to have your opinion based upon your studying of the Word of God. So what I'm going to say is my opinion from studying His Word. I think there is one greatest indicator to know that we are very, 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 very close to knowing what is unknown when Jesus will return. I think that's when you see an outpouring of Jews who begin to profess their faith in the Savior. Maybe I wasn't supposed to say it. Appreciate it.